Chapter 5 As I neared high school graduation in the late spring of 1988, I was arranging to move out. Getting my own place had been the ultimate goal of my teen years, and maybe the ultimate goal of my entire childhood. I was working, and I had a modest amount of money saved, so I rented an apartment. I put down the deposit. I signed the lease. I told Clotine about it. I got my own place, Mom. It's about a mile from here. Uh-huh, she said. Okay. I started to pack boxes, and Tim, who was my boyfriend at the time, helped me load his car for the move. And it hit her. I was moving. If you move out, I'm not going to let you come back, she said, as if that would make me say, oh, really? In that case, I guess I changed my mind. I'll stay forever. The tighter Clotine held on to me, the more I knew I wanted to get away from her. As I hit adolescence in the early 1980s, a lot of my life was me waiting to turn 18 and graduate. In seventh grade, I insisted I get a bed of my own. I had slept in the same full-size bed with Clotine my entire life. We didn't have money for a second bed, I knew that, and Clotine's habit of leaving behind anything that she couldn't carry whenever we moved meant that we had almost no furniture. But I knew we could have gotten another bed from Goodwill or a church. I needed a bed of my own, and I told her so. I wasn't willing to sleep in the same bed with her anymore. So our church gave us a twin-size ottoman, which was the closest I ever got to having my own bed under Clotine's roof. I didn't get a bed with a mattress until I moved out at 18. I bought a terrible $99 frame and mattress, but it was a big moment for me. I felt like a real adult capable of shopping for and paying for my own furniture. The ottoman wasn't exactly a bed, but it was better than the floor. Once I got the ottoman, Clotine still insisted that I wasn't allowed to keep my bedroom door closed. She couldn't trust me, and by this time, I was the target of all sorts of paranoid delusions that involved me wanting to get raped, trying to have sex, and touching myself. Her paranoia ran circles in her brain. I started to see her as very fucked up, but I wasn't even close to knowing what the term mentally ill meant. I just hated her. Another natural part of being a teen for most kids, but not because of Clotine's illness. I'm going to shut my door if I want to. You're being crazy, I screamed at her. All my friends are allowed to close their door when they want. I knew even as I was rebelling like a teenager that I was the grown-up in the situation too, demanding a boundary. I was demanding that she at least tolerate my perception of reality even if she couldn't see the reality that I saw. She was demanding that I do the same, and I did just as much as I needed to so that I could live under her roof. I met Tim in 1986 when I was 16, and he was 19. We were both working at the Drug Emporium. I was making 333 as a cashier. He wasn't my first boyfriend. I'd already been dating someone else, another employee but that guy dumped me when he quit the job. I developed a crush on Tim because he was older, already in college when I met him, and I thought he was cute. We started dating when I was 17. On some level, I was looking for someone to take care of me. I had been looking for someone to take care of me for all of my short life. I'm not sure I believe that Tim could be that person, but I was making plans to get out on my own no matter what happened with Tim. When I was 13, one of the neighborhood girls showed me her hope chest. 
She told me it was a place to save sheets, towels, and dishes. Things you would need when you got married, she said. So I started my own hope chest when I got my first job. When I had money, I would go to the 99-cent store and buy dishes, towels, sheets, and put them in my hope chest. I used all those things in my first apartment. My hope chest was the reason I had anything to move with me at all at 18. By my senior year, I had a job at a bank, and I knew I could move out as soon as I graduated. I didn't join clubs in high school. I didn't care about sports or school spirit or even doing well in school. I just wanted to pass so I could get my diploma. I focused on graduating high school and moving out like they were the pinnacle of what was possible for my life. I didn't have a plan for what I would do once I achieved those two goals because it felt far from certain that I would ever graduate or leave Clotine. She'd been paranoid my whole life that the system or some other named or unnamed paranoid hallucination would separate me from her. Any number of what seemed to her like totally reasonable possibilities. She had no ability to understand that I might move out. While it's not entirely true that I didn't have a plan for what I would do once I graduated and moved out, I had been making promises to myself ever since the day I had asked Clotine if I should wear underwear with my baptismal gown, and she had screamed at me about wanting to get raped. One of my promises to myself was that I'd get my own bed to replace that dreadful ottoman I was sleeping on. Another promise to myself, when I have money and a job, and I don't have to take care of my mom anymore, I'm going to eat pizza whenever I want. To this day, I could eat pizza twice a week. One evening early in our relationship, I went to Tim's dad and stepmom's house for Sunday dinner. They had family dinner together every Sunday with a revolving group of their grown kids, spouses, and families. I had only known Tim for a few months, and I doubt it occurred to him that he might need to prep me in any way for a family dinner. He didn't know, for example, that I'd never been to a house for dinner where the table was set, linen tablecloth and all, before we sat down to eat. The plates and forks and spoons were neatly laid out. Water and wine glasses were sitting up and to the right of each place setting, empty and sparkling. I was about to embark on something totally new to me, and I didn't want to embarrass myself. If we ate dinner at all when I was growing up, Clotine and I didn't eat at the same time. We didn't eat at a dining table, that's for sure, let alone a dining table that was set. I usually ate on the floor in front of the TV, that is, the times when we had a TV. Maureen, Tim's stepmom, called us in for dinner. I remember not understanding what all the silverware was for, so I watched what the other people at the table did, what Tim did. They put their napkins in their laps, so I did too. They used the small fork to eat their salad, so I did too. They asked someone to pass the salt instead of reaching across the table. Not only did I not grow up asking anyone to pass anything, but I didn't even grow up with a salt or pepper shaker in the house. But I caught on and asked Tim to please pass me the salt too. I'd also grown up eating a lot more things with my spoon than Tim's family seemed to. Lima beans, peas, mashed potatoes. That's what a spoon was for in our house. So the one detail I missed was how they ate their peas by pushing them onto their forks with their knives. 
Without thinking, I ate my peas with the teaspoon that had been set out at my place, above my dinner plate, perpendicular to the other silverware. When it was time for dessert, Tim's stepmom, Maureen, got up from the table and nonchalantly replaced my teaspoon with a new one. I was the only person she'd done that for. As she served coffee with dessert, I noticed that the others used their spoons to stir their coffee. I never ate peas with a teaspoon again. My first apartment had a red shag carpet with radiator heating and crank out windows. It was $270 a month plus utilities. I had a full-time job working for a bank. I was exhausted and after a few months, I wanted to escape again. Moving in together without getting married would have scandalized both our families. I wanted something that felt like a sure thing, that felt easy and right. I proposed to Tim. I guess you could say I proposed if telling him I wanted to get married and threatening to break up with him if we didn't get married counts as a proposal. Romantic, huh? We were married in February 1990, a couple of months before I turned 20. After we got married, I converted to Catholicism and threw myself into joining Tim's family. They seemed so normal and so middle class. They seemed to live a predictable life that I found intensely appealing. And they'd had each other. They bantered and joked playfully when they were together. They didn't seem to be keeping any secrets. In Tim's family, Tim and his siblings were all expected to go to college. I wanted to fit in with his family, so I enrolled at Ohio State University the week after I graduated high school. I had never even considered college. In my senior year of high school, I was in a secretarial program for women who weren't going anywhere near college. When I mentioned I wanted to try college, my typing teacher told me I didn't have what it took to get through college and told me to focus on getting a job. Specifically, a job as an assistant to an executive whom I could follow up a ladder of promotions. As his assistant, his promotions would become mine. The conversation pissed me off and solidified my decision to go to college. Even then, I knew I could do better than hitch a ride on someone else's success. But with my GPA, I knew I wouldn't be accepted into Ohio State if I applied for the fall semester. At that time, Ohio State had open enrollment during the summer, so I was accepted on the condition that I test out of remedial math and English courses. I passed the test and was allowed to stay enrolled. I worked at a variety of full-time and part-time jobs while I was in school, including the bank, Pizza Hut, Wendy's, and as a server at a restaurant in a country club. Tim lived with his parents while he was in college all the way up until the day we got married. He graduated from college the quarter after I started college. He continued working at Drug Emporium as a stalker and helped them open their new store. I think about it now. He had no ambition. Before we got married, he accepted the first full-time job he was offered. It was in a call center making just under $7 an hour, which was peanuts even back then. But based upon my history, this seemed normal to me. I was married, in school, working, and very busy. Tim's family was an island of safety after treading water my entire childhood in shark-infested waters. And then the island crumbled and washed back out into the same sea I had just escaped. 
Years after I met my sister, Michelle, and we became pretty friendly, she once described Tim as a flat line. From the outside, I can see how someone might see him that way. He was never a reactive or outwardly emotional person. His placidity was something I liked about him, especially when we first met. He never exploded at me the way Clotine did. He wouldn't have known how to. I took this gentleness for granted after a couple of years, but at first it refreshed me to know that I could fly off the handle and Tim would never shout me down or hit me. But flatline also hints at stability and security. We didn't have those things during our marriage, certainly not financial stability. After Tim graduated college, he kept the call center job for years. Even when he was promoted, he was still grossly underpaid. We had two preschool children and were charging food and diapers to a credit card. I insisted that he ask for a $10,000 raise or threaten to resign, and he actually did it. His annual salary went from 20,000 to 30,000, a 33% increase. A flat line makes me think of predictability too, but we didn't have that either. The issues in our marriage were deep and they joined us from the very beginning. I don't think I want kids, I told him. We had married in February and had this conversation in March. As a 19-year-old, it hadn't occurred to me to make sure we were on the same page about kids before our wedding. He nodded. I saw what I wanted to see, and what I wanted to see was him wholeheartedly agreeing with me. No kids, the two of us on the same page. Now I see that he wasn't agreeing exactly. He was just doing the things he did when he was my boyfriend. What do you want to do Friday night, I might say? Or you want to stop for burgers? Or should we just get hot dogs at the bowling alley? And he would say, whatever you want to do. Let's just do whatever you want to do. It seemed he had no opinion. I got used to him saying that. I started to expect it. Maybe once in a while, it got slightly annoying. A little voice in my head might pipe up, why doesn't he decide? But it seems silly to be annoyed, especially at 19 years old. I should be more than happy with that answer, shouldn't I? Whatever I want works for me. I always had an opinion. I always had a preference and I always got my way. We continued talking about how we didn't want to have kids or how I didn't want to have kids and how he wanted to do what I wanted to do. A few weeks later, I made an appointment for a vasectomy. I didn't see the fact that I was making the appointment as a red flag. He went in for a pre-procedure consultation and I went with him. We sat down next to each other and the doctor took his seat on the other side of his messy wooden desk. The first thing the doctor said to Tim was, you're pretty young to be making this decision. Are you sure you really want to do this? I inhaled, set my jaw, and stared blankly at the wall just above the doctor's head into the space between the doctor's question and his response. Tim inhaled too. Well, I don't know, he exhaled. I'm not sure. I felt my heart seize in my chest and my face turn red hot before I could exhale. I looked at Tim, flabbergasted. Are you kidding me? I looked at the doctor. You know this is not the order of things, right? 
people have this conversation before ever coming into your office. This is not the conversation we had. I wanted the doctor to have my back, but he didn't. They both just stared blankly. Turning back to Tim, why am I just now hearing this is how you feel in front of this stranger? How did we get all the way here if you weren't sure, I said. Tim mumbled an apology. I felt disgusted. They were both afraid of me, staring past the top of my head at the white walls of the office. I stood up and said, let's leave. The doctor urged him to think about it. I nodded in a white-hot rage, storming out the door ahead of Tim so he wouldn't touch me. I felt like a fool. Suddenly, I was in a position where I seemed to be forcing him to have a vasectomy. I thought he didn't want kids. But the truth was that he didn't know how to tell me he did want them. I thought we had talked about it. On the ride from the appointment to our apartment, I transferred some of my anger to the doctor. What a question to ask. Why would he just blurt out a question like that? When we got home from the doctor's office, I carried on for a while. Eventually, we agreed not to worry about kids for now. I felt humiliated because on some level, I'd known all along. My shame made me not want to talk about what had happened. I felt like I had stepped in it, like I'd been a ball buster. So I dropped the whole conversation, and Tim didn't bring it up either. But from then on, I was never sure I could trust him. I knew I couldn't trust him to even know himself or what he wanted. About a year and a half later, I was pregnant with my first baby. In the meantime, in 1990 and 91, we had no kids, but I was still struggling to work and go to school full time. I had been in school for three and a half years and I had just one semester to go when Clotine called me. She'd quit her job. It was the best job she'd ever had working at AT&T. She'd stayed there for five years, a huge accomplishment for Clotine, and the longest she'd ever held down any job. They just don't like me there anymore, Emily, she said in her naive, credulous voice. They wanted to fire me. They were just trying to figure out the best way to do it. Well, why didn't you wait until they actually fired you instead of quitting first? It was too far to drive. I'm not sure my car can keep making it over there every day. She just changed the reason. I was exasperated, but very used to this switcheroo. The paranoid delusion that was compelling her to quit coded the conversation instead of being the focus of it. That was why if I questioned her reason, instead of insisting on what she'd just said, she'd feel free to just pluck a new reason from thin air. The reason was never what she said out loud, but whatever stayed between her ears, unvoiced, no matter how disorganized. Six years later, in 1998, I was working toward a master's degree in social work and studying psychiatric disorders. I read, the person may slip off the track from one topic to another, derailment or loose associations. Answers to questions may be obliquely related or completely unrelated, tangentiality, because mildly disorganized speech is common and nonspecific. The symptom must be severe enough to impair effective communication. But in 1991, I didn't know any of that. I just knew that she made no sense, and that was the story of her life. 
At the time, that made it the story of my life, too. She soon sold her car for almost nothing and asked me for money because she couldn't cover her mortgage payment. We didn't have much, but I scraped together a couple hundred dollars for her. I knew that wouldn't be enough and that she'd need more if she was going to keep her house. Her chaos was my chaos. Her problems were my problems. The crisis as I defined it at the time. My mom is going to lose her house. As a 21-year-old newlywed, I was both highly emotionally wrapped up in what Clotine was doing with herself and had almost no insight about the limits to what I could do about it. I defined her problems as situational, and that made them seem like things I could control—money, food, shelter. But her problems were not those things. In any case, I knew that I did not ever want her to live with us. I had lived away from Clotine for just one year, and the very last thing I wanted was for her to move in with us. So I believed I needed to get more work so I could start supporting her. At the time, I was waiting tables, and Tim and I lived in a one-bedroom apartment. I was losing interest in school, too, especially as I was getting closer to finishing. I couldn't see the point in getting my degree. Maybe my typing teacher was right. Maybe I wasn't cut out for college and I would never make it. I started reminding myself that I'd never had a lot of drive to go to college in the first place, that it was Tim's family that had made me feel like I should give it a try, that I was an English major because Tim had been an English major, that my grades were dipping, that my mom needed money, that I couldn't let her lose the house. I decided to drop out. But once I quit school and started working full-time, Clotine called the bank, told them she was about to default on her mortgage, and moved out. She hadn't even missed a single payment yet. She just called to tell them that she had made her last payment and she wouldn't be making any more. I asked her, why not just wait until they kick you out? But she couldn't find the words to answer me. By then, I was working at places like Wendy's and as a phone rep for Victoria's Secret Catalog, jobs that felt like dead ends. I was letting go of any vision I had for my life, for wealth, for becoming great at something. Tim wanted to continue going to work every day, to come home, to play golf with his dad on the weekends. He had the life he wanted. I was losing the thread that connected me to what I wanted. I was running out of gas. Tim and I decided to get pregnant the same way we had decided earlier not to have kids. It was my idea. I brought it up because having kids seemed like that next thing, something exciting that we could bring to our relationship, something we could have, something that didn't involve travel or taking a huge risk or anything like the other things in which Tim showed no interest. Tim expressed some doubts at first, he thought we might not be ready financially. We weren't. But I countered that no one ever feels really ready. Once I pushed back, he relented right away. Let's do what you want to do. We had our first baby, Barbara, in 1992. I got pregnant with our second baby, Rachel, in 1994. Eight months into that pregnancy, Tim sat me down and told me about the sexual abuse he had suffered as a child. I was 23 by now. We'd been married four years. The priest that married us was Phil Jacobs. Jacobs was also the priest who molested him. 
The priest that married us was Phil Jacobs. Jacobs was also the priest who molested Tim. When Tim was telling me, I think I might have been sexually abused by Father Jacobs. He was so unsure about whether it really even happened. He wasn't sure if he made it happen. Or maybe he even wondered aloud if he wasn't just overreacting to harmless fun. My response in that conversation was, we have to tell people. I knew from the moment he told me that he was abused. I believed him, even if he didn't know whether to believe his own memories. What if there are other people? What if one of your brothers was abused or your friends? But he also shifted in my eyes at that moment into a victim whom I had to take care of. Clotine was often a victim when I was growing up, a victim of her own paranoid delusions, a victim of very real things that happened to her, like when all her money was stolen or we got stranded far from home because the bus we were waiting for never showed up. So I'd had experiences taking care of a victim. When it came to Chloe, it meant I needed to take care of things, manage things, remind her about overdue bills, rearrange furniture, and when I was older, insist she stop bringing strangers home to live with us. I handled many things that she should have handled. In the moment when Tim told me about the abuse, I made a complete shift, whether it was deserved or not. I no longer had trust in his competence as a spouse, husband, life partner. I couldn't trust him anymore. Throughout our marriage, he was always there for me, but I wasn't able to see it. All I saw was a victim. I stopped believing I could count on him from that moment forward. He took on a different image of who I thought he was, cemented by his passivity. He didn't take the lead in going after Phil Jacobs, and that never sat right with me.